Pull out your Bible, open to Ecclesiastes. Ushers are coming down the aisle. If you don't have a Bible, you forgot your Bible. I'm so glad to be back. As I think you all know, Kathy and I got out of Dodge for a week or so. Uh, after all of our journey this last year, we decided let's go to Southern California. We took our daughters, we went to the beach, we went to a concert, and yes, I think you all know that we went to the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. And, uh, and uh, it was not lost on me while I was walking through Disneyland, snuggling with Mickey Mouse and eating ice cream and going on roller coasters that Pastor Christopher was slaving to get up and preach a passage that begins with vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And, uh, and then I got on, online and I watched the service and happened to find out that he did put a picture of me up. Uh, and, but I want you to know the true irony of that moment was when Christopher explained that Koheleth is best translated as the preacher. So, so this is like the truest moment of irony. That is the face of vanity right there, all right? That's the face of vanity. But uh, it's been an amazing study, and I'm really excited to take a swing at it here this morning. And uh, here's what I want you to know. In just a minute, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Here's what you need to know. The book of Ecclesiastes is unlike any other book in the Bible in that it's the only book in Scripture written from the perspective of a skeptic. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. It's the only book in the Bible where someone is looking at life through a lens where they either don't believe in God or they ignore God completely. Someone who's seeking after truth, trying to ask the big questions, looking at the world, looking for meaning, looking for substance, but doing it from the perspective of someone who doesn't believe. And that's a powerful argument. It also makes Ecclesiastes sometimes really difficult to study because you're studying it and you're, and you're going, this person's saying this, but is, is, it, is the meaning actually just the opposite? Like what's going on here? The very common form of argumentation in the ancient world, you would, you would imagine the viewpoint of your opponent and then look at the world through their eyes. And this is what our preacher does. And if you remember, Christopher explained that there's actually two people in Ecclesiastes. There's the author who puts the book together, but the vast majority of the book is between chapters one and the end. It's this preacher who makes commentary, but he's looking at the world through the worldview of someone who doesn't believe in God. And his purpose is to expose how totally intellectually bankrupt that viewpoint is. And so he goes through all these different ideas of what about wisdom, what about pleasure, what about work. And today we come to one of the most provocative themes in all of Ecclesiastes. It's the theme of pleasure. Let me read it and then I'll make a couple comments. Chapter 2, Ecclesiastes verses 1 through 8. Here's what the preacher says next. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. 
till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. And I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. And yes, we are going to talk about that word. And by the way, just as a little bit of a warning here, in about 20 minutes, the sermon's going to get a little bit sensitive as I explain to you the full meaning of the concept of a concubine. And as a part of that conversation, I will talk a little bit about pornography. So if you have children here or if you're online and you want to slip out for that, or if you just have a sensitive conscience, I'm not going to go R-rated. I'll stick to PG-13, okay? But I got to talk about that. So that's going to be an important moment in the message, about 20 minutes. Let me read that verse again. I also gathered for myself silver, gold, treasure of kings. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. I thought about calling my sermon the pleasure test. And here's why. In verse one, notice Solomon says, come now, I will test you. He's talking to his heart. And he says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna test you, heart, with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now, in a moment, I'll tell you why I didn't choose. I actually, the title that I chose is this, when all you've ever wanted isn't enough. That's my theme. I'll tell you why I chose that title. But for now, just look at that word test in verse one. That word means to conduct an experiment. It's a deliberate attempt to learn something from personal experience. The preacher of Ecclesiastes becomes an experimental hedonist. He chooses to make his own personal happiness his chief end in life. And so like a scientist or a philosopher, he experiments with all kinds of things to see what has lasting value or meaning. And his goal is to ask the question, could pleasure be the thing that provides a solid basis for our lives. And as we read, the scope of this test is comprehensive. So if you look, starting in verse two, two through eight gives you all the things the preacher tried, and he tries it all. And I can summarize it with what I call the four L's, okay? You can write this down or you don't have to. I'm gonna show it to you in a second. Laughter, liquor, luxury, and love, by which I mean sex. But we chose love because it's an L, okay? Laughter, liquor, luxury, and love. And a lot of it, of all of them. He says, I'm gonna try it all. I'm gonna, I'm gonna run, that's an interesting experiment to run, isn't it? I'm gonna run, and Solomon was uniquely qualified to run this experiment as the most powerful, wealthiest man on the planet. He says, I'm going to try everything. He says laughter, look at verse one. I said of laughter, it's mad. He tried to entertain himself with comedy. Boy, don't we do this in our world? 
When we're, when we're feeling uncomfortable, when we're feeling nervous, when we're feeling embarrassed, when we need to just get through the day, how tempting it is to turn to entertainment, comedy, crack a joke, watch a cat video on YouTube, right? Laughter. The interesting thing, you see that word mad? I said of laughter, it's mad. That word means it's, he's not talking about crazy. He's saying it's cynical. It often, laughter in our culture turns into cruel, sarcastic, cynical ways of entertainment. Solomon experienced all of that. And then when that didn't fill up, he leaves the comedy club and he heads into the bar and tries liquor. Look at verse two, verse three. Here's what he says, verse three. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Solomon said, maybe, maybe, maybe getting, getting drunk, maybe drinking as much alcohol as I possibly can. A lot of people wonder, was, was this sort of like a frat party, Solomon? Or was this more wine, was this wine tasting in Oregon, Solomon? Like, which was it? Because the very next phrase you see, he says, my heart's still guiding me by wisdom. He's conducting an experiment. And I think what he did was both. I think Solomon said, I'm gonna try pairing Pinot Noir with steak or lamb. And then he said, but I'm also gonna get so sloppy drunk that I'm throwing up in three in the morning. And he gets to the end of the whole thing and, and, and there's no pleasure there. So what does he turn to next? Luxury. Verses four through eight, the finer things in life in addition to wine and laughter, there's many other pleasures in this life, and Solomon had the power and the money to try them all. The most exquisite meals, the most immaculate gardens, the most amazing palaces, the greatest parties. In a moment, Solomon will say, I, didn't, I did not resist any possible pleasure. He tried it all. And it's interesting, you know, maybe, we're tempt maybe we read this and we're tempted to think, man, oh, ooh, I'm kind of curious. What would that have been like? Man, Solomon, he lived the good life, you know? The luxury, imagine it. Imagine the meals. Imagine the servants waiting on him hand and foot. You know what's interesting? A lot of commentators noted, Solomon would look forward to our culture and he would say, I have no idea what luxury is. When I look at what people enjoy in this culture. Think about the comforts we enjoy in the 21st century, right? Think about it. I have a remote control that controls my bed, okay? This is how ridiculous it is. I have a remote control, and when I get in bed, there's a button that's called zero gravity, and I push that button, and the feet come up, and the head comes up, and it cradles me into like the fetal position, like how a baby sleeps in the womb. And then, I, so I get in bed and I put on my CPAP, which is like a breathing machine that breathes for me so I don't die of a lack of oxygen. And I put my thing into zero gravity and I look like baby Darth Vader just sleeping there. <laughs> and my wife looks over and she's like, that's the sexiest thing I've ever seen, you know? <laughs> and I'm just sleeping. And what are the chances Solomon had sleep apnea? Probably pretty high and he slept on concrete. Tonight, I could go out for authentic Korean fried chicken, and then tomorrow night, I could go out for really authentic sushi, and then on Tuesday night, I could go out for Thai food. On Wednesday night, I could go out for Vietnamese food, on and on and on. And I could have all of those things delivered to my house with Uber Eats. 
So lest we think we're going to get fulfilled with luxury. A couple years ago, a social scientist named Greg Easterbrook wrote a book called The Progress Paradox. The Progress Paradox. And here's what he discovered. He studied over the last hundred years in Western secular culture how rich, scientifically advanced, all of our technology progress is going up like this. And what he noticed was unhappiness is going up at the exact same rate as progress. The more comfortable, the more luxurious, the more technology, the more scientific advancement, the unhappier we get. Why is that? Fascinating. But that's not all. Solomon said, well, maybe sex is the key. So Solomon indulged himself in sexual pleasure. Verse 8. Look at it there. Now we know from 1 Kings 11 that Solomon had 700 wives and he had 300 concubines. And again, I'm going to talk about that more in just a moment. But the, 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 the point is he filled his life with as much sex as he could possibly want. And what was the outcome of the experiment? Well, let's read a few more verses here. Look at verse 9. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extended in doing it, and behold, all of it was vanity, a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The whole experiment ends, and what does Solomon conclude? Vanity. Now remember Christopher, who did a fabulous job launching the series, by the way. Wasn't it amazing? And remember, he explained, vanity, it's not the best translation. Some people say meaningless. So what's interesting is that word, hevel, what it's really getting at is sort of the enigma of our world. Because the word means smoke, vapor. There's this paradox in our world because smoke looks like something of substance, but every time you try to grab it, you come away empty-handed. And there's probably no theme in Ecclesiastes that captures that concept. Vanity, meaningless. Every time I try to grab after pleasure, when I, once, once, I've, once I've gone after it, I open my hands and I'm completely unfulfilled. It doesn't matter what the thing is. It doesn't fill me. Pleasure looks like it will make us happy but it never quite satisfies, does it? Let me ask you a question. Try to be honest, because we're at church. If you could get everything you wanted, would you still want it once you got it? I have a feeling you wouldn't. If you could get everything your heart desires on this earth, and then you had it, I have a feeling immediately you'd go, I don't know. Let's talk about Tom Brady. 
for just a minute. Tom Brady, there he is selling cars for Hertz. Arguably the one of the closest people to Solomon on planet Earth. I mean, look at him, he's fabulous looking, all right? The man is just beautiful, okay? And he's rich and, okay, we can take that down because it's actually disturbing, feeling insecure. No. Okay, seven Super Bowl rings, more money than you could ever want. You know, it's fascinating. Tom Brady went on 60 Minutes a few years ago, and here's what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? This is only when he had won three. I mean, what a loser. But anyway, why do I have three Super Bowl rings, and I still think there's got to be something more? There's got to be something greater out there for me. I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is it. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And when the interviewer asked, well, what's the answer? Brady can only say, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So what did he do? He sells rent-a-cars. Maybe that fulfilled him. I don't know. Not likely. But it, here's the thing. It puts us in an interesting conundrum, okay? Because I want you to think about this with me. If pleasure doesn't ultimately satisfy, what is the purpose of pleasure in the first place? Like, why pleasure in this life? What does pleasure accomplish? Why is my tongue covered in taste buds and I live in a world with barbecue chips? You know, what's the point of that? Why is every hair on my arm, every follicle surrounded by all of these super sensitive sensory nerves? And then when the sun comes out in April and it gets 80 degrees, totally hypothetical, but the sun comes out and my arm hairs turn up and I feel the warmth. Why? We have this couple here from Montana. They're candidating for our student ministry job. And they rolled in on Thursday and they drove into the parking lot and I went out there with Pastor Tiffany to meet them and we were standing out there and it was, it was 75 degrees, the sun had come out and they got out of the car and they were like, oh, it's so beautiful here. And I felt this really strange temptation to lie to them <laughs> and tell them totally all year long, people. But why? What is the purpose of any pleasure if no pleasure in this life will ultimately fulfill me? And so what I realized is we need a better theology of pleasure. And Ecclesiastes actually gives it to us. In fact, Ecclesiastes contributes what I'm going to argue the most important understanding of the limits of pleasure and the ultimate purpose of pleasure. So here's where I do want you to write some stuff down. What I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you three clarifications from this passage, three really critical truths that every Christian needs to know, and you'll move towards a deeper understanding of pleasure. Here's number one. None of the pleasures listed in this passage are wrong. They're, none of them are inherently wicked. None of them are wrong in and of themselves. Now, I want you to listen really carefully so you don't mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Solomon did not do wicked things. He clearly did. I'm not saying that he didn't 
sin in his pursuit of ultimate pleasure. He clearly did. What I'm, do, what I'm gonna do in a minute is I'm gonna show you the distinction between the way that Solomon did it the, and the motive for what he was doing and the actual individual forms of pleasure themselves, which I'm gonna argue are God-given. So, for example, the pleasure of laughter. Have you ever just wholesome, like someone says something and it's just, it's so wholesome, and, and, but it's so funny, you laugh till your side hurts and there's tears, okay? That's wonderful. Have you ever paired the perfect Pinot Noir with a mildly raw steak, and maybe not raw, but, and you just taste it, and, and even, now think about then this could get me in trouble, but even that tiny little warm buzz from the wine and the flavor, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That feeling, the taste, even luxury, a perfectly cooked meal, a garden that's gorgeous, and sexual pleasure. Man, in the church, we got to talk about the fact that God designed that. Did he have to make sex pleasurable? He didn't. He did that for a reason, right? So what's the problem in Ecclesiastes? If all of those things on their own, pursued in one way, are totally good, where did Solomon go wrong? And here's where I need to take you back to verse one, show you this fascinating little phrase. We, we read of it really quick. Here's what he says. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I want you to look at that phrase, come now. Okay? He doesn't begin with the pleasure test. He doesn't set out on this experiment until now. What's now? Well, what happened before? This is where it's so important if you've missed, you gotta go back sometimes and catch up, watch the sermon online. Last Sunday, we saw that Solomon had already tried something. And it wasn't until he tried that other thing that he said, ah, maybe the answer is pleasure. So look back at chapter one, just a couple things I'll note. Solomon, he, he, he's coming out of an experiment. It's something that he's already considered, something that he's already concluded. In, ver, in verse 13, I'll just read a couple verses here. Verse 13, Solomon says, chapter one, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. Verse 14, I've seen everything that's done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And then verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he increases knowledge, increases sorrow. This is so important. He didn't at first decide to live for pleasure. He said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna use all of my cognitive faculties, all my intellect, all my wisdom, and I'm gonna look at life, and I'm gonna try to figure out the purpose and the meaning of life. But remember, he says, he's doing it with the perspective under the sun. And Christopher said, remember, that means Solomon's pretending there's no God. It's life viewed from a human perspective. Under the sun, this is all there is. There's nothing significant about our beginning and there's nothing eternal about our end. What if the only key to life was this temporary little blip on the screen you get? He says, I'm gonna take the worldview of a secular humanist and a materialist. And he looks at all that 
life from a purely human perspective, and what did he conclude? If this is all there is, he says, there's no answers to the big questions. There's no ultimate meaning. There's no purpose. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no evil. All of this world, we, it's just one big cosmic fleeting accident. And that's when he turned to pleasure. He's like, if that's true, and by the way, if you believed that there was nothing divine, nothing eternal, if you had a naturalist, materialist worldview, the only way of living that would make any logical sense if you were being intellectually honest is pure unbridled hedonism. Just do whatever you want because life is short, right? This is so important, folks. Think about this. Solomon turned to pleasure. He didn't turn to pleasure for pleasure itself. He turned to pleasure because he was desperately seeking meaning, transcendence, a sense of worthwhileness. There's got to be meaning in this world. Maybe I can find it through pleasure. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about pleasure. He wrote a lot about it. He thought a lot about it. And some of you have come up and said, you, why do you quote so much from C.S. Lewis? And I'm always like, why don't you quote so much from C.S. Lewis? That's the real question. But um, he wrote a lot about pleasure. And I just want to read a couple things. In Mere Christianity, one of his great books, he's, he basically, he begins his argument um, and he says, if we were being honest, we, we would all admit that we have within us this desire for something that we can never quench in this world. No matter how hard we try, we, it's like the desire is always more strong than any experience of fulfillment that we get. And here's what he said. I've got these on the quotes. The, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, they're longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And he says later, he says, even the greatest, the greatest marriages, the greatest trips you take, the greatest things you learn, he's saying even the greatest ones, they never quite fully satisfy your deepest aches. He goes on, there was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. You get to reality and that first longing is sort of like, it's not, it's just disappears. And then he goes on, this is amazing. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only, listen to this, to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Isn't that great? Man, wish I could write like C.S. Lewis. Our unsatisfied longings, they're like these little spiritual clues that God wrote into the universe. Like little spiritual, just he's ticking at your heart. 
Never feel satisfied? Why might that be? Maybe we were made for something more. And you say, well, how is this a message for Christians? How is this a message for believers then? Well, think about this for just a minute. I need you to be super honest with yourself. If functionally, and this is where you got, I need you to think about your life. If functionally you are trying to find meaning in your life through pleasures in this world, could it be that means that functionally you don't really believe meaning can be found in your relationship with God? I'm not saying you don't say, you say with your mouth, oh yeah, I find meaning in my relationship with God. But functionally, how many Christians live in this world and there's all this evidence that what they're really doing is trying to jam stuff into some hole that's never getting filled? Why is it when a couple, when their kids, when there's an empty nest, a couple slips into inconsolable depression or their marriage unravels? What were they seeking with their children? Why is it that a man who has a loving, wonderful wife at home who, who is so faithful to him, why is it that he goes to work and flirts with his secretary? Why is it that the couple that already has an amazing house with plenty of room, they work their fingers to the bone trying to get one that's just a few hundred feet bigger or a little closer to the lake? Why, why would we do that? And so, a really interesting thing happening here. Look at verse 5. This is like one of those things where you only see it in the Hebrew. In verse 5, there are two or three hyperlinks in verse 5 back to the Genesis account. So, um, when he's writing verse 5 and all the trees, all the fruiting trees and the way he's planting gardens, the Hebrew listener is going, wait a minute, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I want you to think about this. This is really, really important. And I'll, I'll actually let Derek Kidner say it to you. Derek Kidner is a great commentator. Here's what he says about Solomon's garden house project, okay? He says, Solomon creates a little world within a world, multiform, harmonious, exquisite, a secular garden of Eden. Look at that, a secular garden of Eden full of civilized and agreeably uncivilized delights with no forbidden fruits. Solomon was trying desperately to get back to paradise, but with one key omission, he would be the God of the garden. Again, C.S. Lewis says it like this. Surely a man's hunger does not prove that he, surely man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist. In the same way, though I do not believe Though I do not believe that my desire for paradise proves that I will enjoy it, I think it's a pretty good indication that such a thing exists and that some people will get there. We have this irrepressible desire for paradise. And C.S. Lewis says, exactly. And that's the most compelling evidence you need that paradise is waiting, but you can never find it here. You never create it here. You'll never drink enough, sleep with people enough, feel enough to get there because your heart was created to find the fulfillment in a relationship with the one who is the God of the garden. 
one more clarifying comment here. I want you to think really deeply about this. This is where it's going to get a little more heavy. I'm going to talk a little bit about sex here, but the overindulgent, pleasure-at-all-cost philosophy of life. Do we have this, Leslie? I'll put it up so they can see it. The overindulgent, pleasure-at-all-cost philosophy of life always involves harm to others. Think about this. And in fact, I'll say it stronger. It requires that other people suffer. Or let me say it like this. Often on the other side of my pleasure is another person's suffering. Concubines and slaves. That was the cost in order for Solomon to achieve total worldly pleasure. Slaves and concubines. It's not the main point of the passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I'm going to talk about it because it's important for us to be truthful to each other. The gardens and palaces were built not by Solomon himself, but on the backs of slave labor. The gold and silver that came into his coffers, he didn't earn it by being really hard worker. He stole it after he destroyed other people groups. He took their stuff. And the sexual pleasure came at the expense of sex slaves. Because that's what a concubine is. 300 of them. A concubine was a woman given to a man simply for the purpose of sexual pleasure. Concubines were objects. And the dark truth is they didn't sign up for this. Do not think the bachelor, okay? This is not what's going on. These were young women, think just at the age of sexuality, taken against their will. They never got to marry. They never got to fall in love. They never had a family. They didn't even get to enjoy the experience of safe, intimate sexuality as God designed it. They only got to be on hand with 299 others waiting for the moment when the king would summon them. And if that makes us feel sick to our stomach, now we're ready to have a conversation about pornography. Because every man with a phone in his hand has thousands of concubines. And it's important to talk about it. And I recognize that in our culture, more and more women are looking at pornography. But just for a moment, ladies, if you can listen, we'll have a conversation with the brothers. Because the reality is it's the men who are economically driving this industry. And if we're going to be honest, and I really just want to be gentle but very honest, to free, I hope I can free you as your stomach drops because it's a real thing. And, and it's a struggle for all men and women and Christian and non. And the reality is they don't know for sure, but the guess is that in the pornography industry, almost 50% of the women are sex slaves. They're not there by choice. Some of them were captured when they were adolescent girls. The reality is pornography is dark. The greatest lie in our culture is pornography doesn't harm anyone. Pornography is creating inexplicable harm in our society. Just imagine, now just think about this for a minute with me. By the way, I read a book. I, I can't even say I recommend it, but, um, but I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> It was written by, this is, her name's Mary Harrington. She's an atheist. She's a feminist. 
She has no love for Christianity. And she wrote a book called Feminism Against Progress. And what she argues is all of the progressive ideas about sexuality, free, all the sexual revolution, it's one big, hairy, audacious lie. And it's actually ruining people's lives, especially women. Because imagine what it would be like to be an adolescent girl who grows up in our culture where the expectations of the average boy have not been shaped by sitting in church hearing about sex taught. Their expectations for a sexual encounter have been given to them from what they see in a pornographic video. Imagine what that would do to the heart of an adolescent girl and what she might be willing to try or do or compromise or sacrifice. And it would be devastating. And I know this is unpopular, but I'm gonna say it. One of the things she says in this book is, the massive rapid rise of young adolescent girls turning towards um, like rejecting the gender binary, so they call it rapid onset gender dysphoria, where it's not happening with boys, it's happening with girls at a massive rate. And she says pornography is one of the main reasons, because why would you want to stick around and be a part of what pornography tells you to do? So it's harmful. And men, if you're struggling, oh my gosh, I love you so much, and there's help, there's resources. When you walk into our restrooms, you'll notice we've got some stuff in there that, that's there where you can privately access it and get help. Don't carry this alone. God wants to free you. In a minute, I'm going to talk about a pleasure that will so exceed that that it, it has the power to rescue you. The greatest claim in our culture is that it's repressive Christianity that's harming people, and it's actually just the opposite. Friends, it's just the opposite, which is why I'm talking about this, okay? Imagine, there's a little thought experiment, and then I'm going to move on. Imagine if for one generation, one generation, 60 years, let's say, every single sexual encounter that happened on earth, now think about this. Imagine one generation, every single encounter of sexual intimacy happened within the confines of God's design in a safe, intimate, loving, monogamous marriage, one man and one woman. Think of all of the hurt, trauma, suffering that would be eradicated in one generation. Isn't that profound? Isn't that profound? So next time somebody says Christianity is repressive, the sexual vision is harming people, can I just encourage you? It is just the opposite. And we need to talk about it. And now I'm done talking about it. Take a deep breath. Exhale. Okay. But what I'm going to say next is even more intense. Here we go. Final clarification. Leslie, let's put this up. Even pleasure enjoyed in wise moderation is completely meaningless without God. Here's what Solomon does next. Look at verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. But the reader's going, wait a minute, you already considered wisdom and madness and folly back in chapter one. And I think what Solomon does, he says, I did. But now that I've done my pleasure test and I've gone to the extremes, maybe the answer is to enjoy pleasure with wisdom and moderation. Maybe that's the key. I'll finally be happy. 
And here's what he says. He says, what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. There's more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He's basically saying, yes, granted, compared to folly, wisdom is relatively better. In this life, it's better to be slightly wise than a fool. But look what he says next. And yet I perceive that the same event happened to all of them. The wise and the foolish, the rich and the poor, people who have experienced immense pleasure in their life and people who haven't, every single one of them experiences the same outcome. I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. If this is all we have, whether it's pleasure or not pleasure, wisdom or folly, it doesn't matter. We're all going to meet the same fate, exactly the same. Death is the great equalizer. I remember I, I heard a story once about Alexander the Great, who was this very powerful king, and he probably did a lot of what Solomon did, and he had this philosopher, uh, Diogenes, who would constantly come and confront him and rebuke him. And one time, Alexander the Great walked out into a field and he was feeling pretty good about himself and how important he was. And he walked up and Diogenes was standing there looking down at the ground and there was a pile of bones. And he's looking very philosophical. You know, he's probably going like this. And Alexander the Great walks up and says, what's going on, Diogenes? And he said, it's interesting. I'm looking here for the bones of your father, but I can't tell the difference between his bones and the bones of the peasants who died with him. There's absolutely no difference. And so what does Solomon conclude? Look at this. I hated life. I hated life. He went from hedonism to nihilism. What's the point? What's done under the sun is grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon said it doesn't matter if it's wisdom or pleasure or life under the sun. It's complete. I hate it. But here's the question. Why do we have to keep looking at life that way? What if we popped up above the sun? And so, well, wait a minute, maybe there's another way. And so can I close with the Apostle Paul, what he recommends, Colossians 3. You know this verse. What if you lived your life like this? If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. You know what that word seek means in the Greek? It means desire. That's pleasure. Paul's saying, what if you directed all of your desire for pleasure to the throne of the universe? And then the very next phrase, so seek the things that are above or Christ, and then set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are earth. You know what that mind is? That's wisdom. Now we've got wisdom and pleasure, and Paul says, Ecclesiastes, take both of those. Stop looking at this world. Look up and ask the question, if I gave my heart completely to Jesus Christ, is it possible that he would so fulfill all my need for wisdom and all my longing for desire? And there's a paradox here because think about this. The moment Christ fills that void in your life, what's amazing is all those other things that we get to enjoy suddenly 
they find their proper place in my life, just below, just behind Christ. And even in the process of enjoying them, by enjoying them with Christ as my ultimate love, my ultimate affection, all those things now help me actually enjoy Christ even more. Enjoyed to his glory. Amen? Amen? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to enjoy Christ right now. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have you bow your head. I'm going to have the worship team come. And I'm going to give you an opportunity here to reflect on your life a bit. So as you bow your head, think with me for just a moment. If you were to answer the question, what am I really running after right now? How would you answer it? What in this world gets most of my money, most of my free time, most of my screen time, most of my imagination, most of my fascination? What's getting it right now? Is it possible that that is the thing that's lured you into thinking if you get this, you'll be happy and you're not? The stomach of your heart feels constantly empty. And what if the meal we're about to eat is the one that can actually fill your soul? And so Jesus, we, we wanna hear from you. The sermon's over, but you're not done speaking. And so as we go to the table, please, King Jesus, would you speak to our hearts, open our eyes, reveal, myself included, Help us today to seek the things that are above, to fix our minds on Christ, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.